0: So our passage this morning, as we uh, progress through this study of Ephesians under Pastor Ben, we're in chapter three. We're going to be looking at verses fourteen through twenty-one. You can find that passage in your rack Bible there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find that on page nine seventy-seven. We come to this incredible pinnacle, if you will, here in this this uh, this amazing uh, letter of Paul to the Ephesians church. So again. Uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
1: Thank you, Craig. Well, in many ways, this passage has shaped and steered my preaching over the last two years. It was really foundational for us as we went into the summer of love in 2017. For those that remember that, this was a text that we kept coming back to. And it's ultimately what then led to the desire to preach all of the letter to the Ephesian church, which we've now been in for a number of months. And because of that conviction, I said, you know what? There's a, there's a large lead up to Paul's writing this letter. And it really starts in the beginning of the book of Acts and is the story of the early church. So I was convicted to preach through all of Acts, at least up to where the church in Ephesus was planted in Acts 19. So for the last two years, this passage has shaped and steered our our journey together. And I'm looking forward to pressing in on some of the Uh, unique parts of this prayer that is probably familiar for many. Uh, I would guess there's many in the room who have memorized all their parts of it, likely in another version, so it maybe sounds strange on the tongue. You'll see if I just revert into words that are not in your ESV Bible, it's because it's just ingrained in there in a slightly uh, different version. Imagine that. Well, thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and and sustaining grace and mercy. You've walked with us and ahead of us these years, and we pray that you would just continue to do so, continue to shape us and steer us, we pray. This really is one of the most powerful prayers recorded in the scriptures, and I would assume that the answer is yes to these two questions if I ask you as a follower of Jesus, if you are, would you like to pray with greater power? Would you like to live with a powerful life of prayer. I'm assuming they're yeses. And that's really the whole course of our life. It's never wrong to say yes to that because there's always growth in those areas for us. But let's learn from a man who knew both, lived a life of prayer and powerful prayer at that. We may be surprised a little bit, I hope so, and we may greatly be encouraged by what he prays. And really it's this, as we looked at last week, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, he is in, his, in bondage, in chains, under house arrest, in Rome, under Emperor Nero, and his life would end at his hands. That's where he wrote this letter. That's where he prayed these prayers. One of the most powerful prayers perhaps ever prayed by a man on his knees in a jail cell awaiting his execution. That should give some of us hope in the way that we pray. And certainly the benediction that Paul leaves us with, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than even we can ask or imagine. So whatever small little prayers you think you might be praying, our incredible God can take and multiply and empower and translate even bigger than we could possibly think. That gives us encouragement. We'll end with that thought as well. This is really the second powerful prayer in Ephesians, the first was in chapter 1, verses 16 and following. If you have your Bibles open, it's just probably right on the other page. Paul, Paul kind of began his, his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesian church, saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's difficult to find a place to stop because Paul really didn't. He continued to flow in that mindset of prayer for the Ephesians. And this is the second one, and you'll, you'll certainly would have heard the, the similarities of tone and passion, but there's also some distinct differences. Now, he is praying for empowerment, whereas in the first chapter, he's praying for enlightenment, that they would know. Now, he's praying that they would be enabled from awareness to acquisition. The first prayer is that they would know who they are in Christ, and now he is praying that they would be who they are meant to be in Christ one of the most powerful prayers ever prayed, and his primary request was this, that God's people would lay hold of his love. That word translated comprehend, that they would comprehend, that we would comprehend. The the love of God is a word more than mental knowledge and understanding. It literally means to grasp to lay hold, to experience. That's Paul's prayer. Everything that he could have prayed for this church who was thriving in some ways, struggling in others, he doesn't pray for anything external. He prays for the internal. He prays that they would lay hold of the love of God because for Paul, to know the love of God changes everything. To know the love of God changes the way that anyone would live, that changes a church, it may even change the world. And that's what Paul is desperately praying for this church. Now, let's not forget that these are believers. These are already followers of Jesus. It might make sense that you would pray for a loved one who who does not know the Lord, is not walking with God, is not living with life and the freedom and the hope and the victory that Jesus came to purchase and buy. And you might pray for that one that they would know the love of God, that they would experience it. And that's a good prayer. But Paul is praying for believers who have experienced it, who do know it, who have received Jesus, who have been filled with the Spirit, who have experienced something in their city that was transformative. If you remember the story Acts nineteen, you can flip there at some point. I mean, the whole city was abuzz with what was happening in their city. Lives were being transformed. Demons were being driven driven out. People were being healed simply from a handkerchief that Paul had touched. They were bringing it to the sick, and they were being miraculously healed. This was taking place in their city. These were the Ephesians that Paul is now writing to. I am longing that you would know the love of God. And yet, don't they already know it? And yet, they must grow in it. Paul was praying with power and with passion that this church, who are already believers... Would have a deeper grasp, a deeper experience. They, they would be rooted. That's that first picture and image that he gives. They would be rooted in the love of God. Well, I love to call that one out. That's one of our core values here. New shoots, deep roots, diverse fruit. Where, where does a plant's strength, stability, and nourishment come from? Deep roots. And it comes, there's a few images in Scripture. Wait, we didn't just come up with this one on, on our own, by the way. Psalm 1. How about this one? Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and he does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. He is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And it should be obvious that our... Strength, our stability, our nourishment as followers of Jesus come rooted, Paul says, rooted in the love of God. That's our source. So that when times of trouble come, when circumstances are difficult, when the storms of life blow, we do not fear. When the heat of drought comes and it's a desert season, we have no fear because our roots are drawing deep from his love from who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised, and therefore who we are and what we're called to be. So rightly, to receive this prayer, we put ourselves again as recipients like the Ephesians were. And it was easy to build this bridge. I've done it a number of times in this series, so if you're new to this, you'll have to trust me. Paul was praying for a church that he loved dearly, that he had been with and spent years with. It has been many years now by the time he's writing this letter back to them. But ultimately, he's writing to all churches the same, all who have come to grow up in Christ, to mature, to see lives and families and even a city transformed. And he's also watching this church and hearing from afar of their struggles and their challenges, the pressures of the world, the secular world that was against them, the persecution that they faced, the crisis of individuals and families, of just what happens in life and in ministry. And his heart is breaking because he sees them drifting. He sees them losing the passion and the love that they have at first. And he's writing back to them. And so it's very easy to put ourselves in this place and say, are are we any different? Are we not the people of God who have responded to him, have grown up in him? A church that God's grace and favor has been on, that by many accounts is healthy, but in other ways needs the great encouragement and reminder of the incredible love of God. Is it possible that we have drifted and wandered and abandoned the love of God? So we receive it. We say, thank you that this eternal prayer can be ours, that Paul is simply praying for God's faithfulness to his promises of what he has already done. And we receive it, and then we engage it by praying the same. By praying the same for us, for one another, for God's greater church that meets in any number of locations and places. We pray this, and here's some of the main themes of this prayer Strength and power in our inner being, the Holy Spirit filling and dwelling within us, deep and growing, abiding and unshakable love, and the fullness of God in our lives and in our church. I've prayed this prayer for you countless times in the past two years. And I don't see an end in sight. Some of you have joined me in that ongoing prayer. It was an invitation two years ago when we went through the Summer of Love. At that point, I don't think I put an end to it. So I hope it didn't end with the Summer of Love, but it's continued. And if you have not or do not continue to pray this prayer, I don't know that there's anything more important for us and for the church as a whole than a prayer like this, not in rote uh, reciting, but in heartfelt engagement with these themes, that we would know the love of God that he would strengthen and empower us in our inner being, that the Holy Spirit would fill us and dwell in us, that we would know the fullness of God in our lives and in the church. It's slightly nuanced here, but I think it's worth calling out. Paul is not praying and praying to the Father. Oh, I pray to the Father that the Ephesians would love you more. And so Ephesian church, love him more. That's fully a fine prayer. It's a good prayer. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important thing really in all of life and all, all of the law for the Jews, that was the most important thing. Jesus' answer was love. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's not a wrong prayer. Paul could have easily prayed and urged the Ephesians, love God more. He's worthy. Give him your all. But that's not what he is praying here. Paul is praying that they would know God's love for them. That's his greatest passion and longing. He's on his knees, which wasn't a common position for a Jew. In fact, throughout Scripture, the most common posture of praying was standing. Standing, perhaps with arms raised, or calling out to God, invoking his presence and his work. Being on one's knees is a sign of Humility, even weakness of servitude. But Paul is matching what his heart is in that moment. I bow before the Father. I am crying out to Him that they would lay hold of the love of God, that they would know how deeply they are loved by their Father. Because for Paul, that will change everything. That will change how you live we've said many times that Ephesians is kind of broken up in half. The first three chapters, by the way, Paul didn't put in the chapters and the verses. Someone much, much later put those in for reference point, but they try to follow some themes and some flow of thought. In the first three chapters, which we're finishing today, Paul is reminding the Ephesians who their God is and therefore who they are, the gospel, the truth, the indicatives of their faith. The second half. The last 3 chapters are the imperatives. Now then, because of this, live this way. I urge you, I command you, because the Lord has commanded us to live this way. Very important to understand because there's some powerful exhortations in the last four, last 3 chapters, 4 through 6. And if we just take them as, okay, this is then I must live this way. The Bible tells me so. We've missed perhaps perhaps or forgotten the motivation for why we would ever live that way. The love of God, the love for us, poured out to us in and through Jesus Christ. And how does that love, how is that love expressed both to the Father, to one another, fellow believers, and even to our world, the lost within it, of whom we are counted until saved by Christ. When we know how deeply we are loved, it will change how we live And really, the second half of this letter is also centered on expressing the love which we have received. Let me just recount a few of them. I've listed them there because I'll move quickly. Chapter 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Imperative. Verse 15 of 4. Rather, speak the truth in love, verse 17. Be built up in love, verse 32. Be kind and loving, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, verse 1. As beloved children. So he only got one chapter in before now. He's reminding them again. You are beloved children. And as beloved children, be imitators of God and walk in love. 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Chapter 624, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible, imperishable. And that's just a snapshot. Really, if we would receive this prayer of Paul's laying hold of the love of God, then these actions that we're called to in the second half will be more natural than work for us. They will flow out of this love, and that's the right order that Paul is urging the church. So let's keep that rooted in our minds as we proceed in the weeks ahead. Furthermore, Paul believes that this is not only possible for us. When he speaks of hope, it's not a hope in some far-fetched thing. It's hope that brings confidence and assurance. That's biblical hope through faith. And so when Paul is speaking in this way, it's not just one day, maybe you could, I, I just hope. It's, this has already been done. It's already accomplished. I'm just praying with passion that you know it, that you remember it, that you live in it. It's how he began the letter. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. According to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us, it's already been done. If you're living without a sense of his love, you're living rather with shame and uncertainty. If you're living without a sense of peace, regardless of circumstances, if you're living without freedom, without victory, without hope, it's not because it's not being offered and given. It's because you are choosing to find all of those things in empty wells. The love of this world, the peace and security it tries to proclaim, the hope, the pleasure, the direction, all things that are already ours in Christ Jesus if we would receive them, if we would lay hold of them. And Paul is praying that we would be empowered to do so. Holy Spirit, stir up, enliven, empower your people to lay hold of this love and the riches of your grace which have already been given, that they would know it, that they would experience it. I love this phrase, that we have been given, that God gives us according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. As I know, it's a slight thing, but he doesn't say, give to them from your riches, Lord. The promise isn't that we will be given from the riches of God, but according to, in accordance with his riches. Let me try to clarify that. If Jeff Bezos says, I'm feeling generous, I see you, John, there's a few Johns in the room, John, I give you one million dollars. That's pretty awesome. Okay, we'll be excited. That is from his riches. That is not in accordance with his riches. Now, if he were to give you a billion dollars, we're starting to get closer to the idea of giving in accordance with his wealth. And we have a God who owns all things. Paul says he's already lavished upon us. He gives to us in accordance with his riches, in accordance with. From his glory. It's a staggering thought, and we will fail to fully grasp it. Paul will even admit that here, won't he? He admits that God's love is so great as he even prays that they would know it, grasp it, lay hold of it, understand it, comprehend it, experience it. <laughs> those are all wrapped up in, that, in those Greek words, that they would know that, and yet it surpasses knowledge. We've mentioned some of the paradoxical ways that Paul Speaks, but how could you not when you're speaking of an eternal, unending God? Let's speak of something not even eternal to help us grasp that idea a little more clearly. That we would understand, lay hold, experience the love of God. If God's love is like an ocean, been a few songs sung like that. If you wade into the surf on a Californian beach, one of my favorite things to do, just maybe ankle deep or letting the water lap up, and the sand moves around your feet and then drifts back, and you slowly start to sink in, do you know the Pacific Ocean as you stand and behold its vastness on a clear day, perhaps even see the curvature way out in the distance? Do you know its depth? Do you know its length? Do you know its power? And yet, if that's the only experience you ever had, you you might find yourself saying, Oh oh I I know the ocean. But do you have to swim in it to know it? Dive under it? Cruise across it, fly over it? There's always going to be greater depths, aren't there? Someone who has been lost at sea for weeks knows the Pacific Ocean a little bit differently. Someone who has served in the Navy. Someone who has spent their life salvaging or exploring. There's all different levels and depths. But even a child could say, I love the ocean. There's always more. And Paul kind of catches himself up with that idea that you would lay hold of the love of God and know how deeply you are loved by Him. And yet, it will surpass any knowledge. It will surpass any experience. There's always more. It's not going to be a progressive more as if every week we could come and gather and slowly build and understanding and knowledge. We pray that it might be like that, but often it's a different kind of experience. Through ups and downs and deeper and higher, more emotional at times, more intellectual at times, that we would know the love of God. Here's what Paul says, that not only will we lay hold of it, never drip from it, never lose it, that Christ would dwell in our hearts forever. That phrase, that word to dwell, Paul could have used a word simply meaning to inhabit, but he uses a word that I think most literally translates to settle down, to think of Uh, Think of the uh, explorers, the settlers finding whole new places and then making it theirs and crafting a homestead in a place. That may be a stretch for some of us. So think of the difference between inhabiting a hotel room for a night and how that space feels and you living in it feels compared to buying a home and setting it up for both life and family hospitality, and ministry. This is the word that Paul is using. That Jesus would settle down and dwell within us. That he is the owner and the architect. That he has all access to all spaces. And we would rightly pray, Jesus, clean house, rearrange the furniture. If needed, tear us down to the studs or even the foundation and rebuild us because we are yours. Because You own us, not in a dominating way, but because you have bought our life and we yield it back to you. So settle down within us and dwell in us. That's what Paul is praying. Let me take a sober turn here. It's important for us to hear this in the backdrop of all of this. With Paul's passion and love being expressed and poured out to this Ephesian church, they ultimately never grasped it. They continued to drift, and as a church, eventually died. As I've said a few times, Ephesians is unique for many reasons, but for this, probably above all, it's the one church we see in the New Testament that we see its beginning. We see it started by Paul. We see it through this letter and later in Acts. We see it growing and thriving in many ways. And then we also see at the end of the story that it is declining and dying. And today the city is just ruins. In Revelation chapter 2, there's another letter written to this church, a shorter one, written through the apostle John, but it's Jesus writing the words. And he writes to the church in Ephesus. This would be many years after Paul wrote his letter, many years after Paul has given up his life at the hands of Nero. Nero. And this is what Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 2 to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That was all good. It's good. It's good. But, I kind of knew that was coming, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Because if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We must keep this as a backdrop. This great church, this beloved church, this church that saw a city transformed in many ways through their ministry. They drifted and they died. Their light was snuffed out. Jesus gave them high praise. Read the other letters at the beginning of Revelation. Not all the churches receive any praise. High praise. By many accounts, this at this point would have been considered a healthy, thriving church, faithful. They loved the Word. They protected against false teaching. What was at the core of this? Ultimately, we don't know. We only know what is given. But they've abandoned the love they had at first. Was it love for God, love for one another, love for the lost in their city? Were they reactive now and protecting because of all the persecution, and so they weren't reaching out or assuming some things, but in keeping with the context of what Paul recognized, what Paul was writing to them, it seems that they have forgotten or lost the depth of which they have been loved by God their Father. How could they have lost it, walked from it, abandoned it? How could we not be in awe of the love of God, astonished by it, moved by it, changed by it? Only if we see him as less than he is or if we consider ourselves as more than we are. But Paul was absolutely right. And many scholars will call out, but I, don't, I, I don't know that Paul's passion is matched in any of his other letters than to the church in Ephesus. And yet, the church in Ephesus was a healthy church by all accounts. There was no major crisis that we know of, no division no invasive sin that they were struggling with that continued to invade them and dishonor the Lord. I mean, read, it, read Corinthians. In fact, Paul took a few letters to write to them, too, we have recorded. What a dysfunctional church in Corinth. By all accounts, Ephesians was like the hallmark church, and yet Paul wrote with a zeal to them that is unmatched. He heard something or saw something that broke his heart, and had he still been alive, to read John's words from Jesus, that would have completely crushed him. May it break the heart of every one of us, the heart of every pastor. Would we be any different? Why would we be? Do we think we are? Well, by all accounts, Union Hill Church has a longer history than the church in Ephesus. Feel good about that? By the grace and mercy of God, he has chosen to keep his light on this hill, not by any one of you, not by me, we're just a part of the story, seeking to steward what has been given and praying with that mindset, may it be, Lord, it's why our vision is a hundredfold harvest in the next hundred years. It's not that, oh, because someone else will do it down the road, it's that God, may it be, may there still be a harvest in a hundred years. In this place, because we've recognized your grace and mercy. But we would rightly pray these same prayers, inspired both by Paul and by Jesus himself. Not, not Lord, help us. Where, where have we abandoned our, our, our love? Or where could we have? Have we lost it? Not questioning, but Lord, show us. Lord, show us where we drift. Where we walk away from the love we had at first, when we first come to know you and follow you. When a church first starts, it goes out. We call those a church plant. Sometimes that's why we like this greenhouse imagery because we grow up with deep roots in a safe environment, and then we plant out in a field that is harsh and against us. That wants to, the enemy that wants to kill us. Better have those deep roots ready. But so we plant a church, and those church plants, those. Planters, whether it's just a pastor couple or a group of 30, who knows, they are praying and going with a vision of, you know what, we might, we might not make it, but these people in this neighborhood, in this community, in this region, they need Jesus, and he's calling us to go and proclaim, to give it all that we've got. We don't even have a building. We don't have a place to meet. We've got a tent. We've got a street corner. We've got a couple signs. We've got a couple bucks. We've got Not much but the Holy Spirit, but he wants these people to know him, and they are driven and missional. The stats, I don't have them offhand, but the stats of people's unreached peoples that are reached by church plants is staggering compared to existing churches because there's something about that heart, and they, when they have that thought of, we may not make it, okay. That's how missionaries go out, but there's something about a church making it, i got to put that in air quotes, the church never makes it. As soon as they think they've made it, they are dying. And I'm not against buildings and facilities and stewarding them and caring for them and praise God for the freedom to walk in this door and proclaim in this nation, King Jesus. We still have it. So I'm not against any of this, but at some point, whatever the measurement tool is of whew, we made it. We've started to die. And it's why I'm always trying to replant us, recast us, revision us. That we would continue to have that mindset of, uh, in fact, we're unlikely to make it. Have you seen the world around us? Let's live that way. We are unlikely to make it. So Jesus, we need your grace. We need your love. We need the empowerment to lay hold of it and live with it. Send us, Lord. Send us, Lord. That's why I've given us that. Little practical challenge this summer to simply, how does it happen? What do church plants do and planters do? They open up their tables to all peoples. It's what Jesus did to his disciples and modeled it perfectly. He washed their feet, he served even Judas, who he knew would betray him. All peoples he drew to himself, and we're called to do the same. Send us, Lord. As we pray these prayers, Not, Lord, have we we drifted? Have we abandoned your love? We pray, Lord, show us. Show us where. What else do we do? We repent. We better start where Jesus says to start. Jesus didn't say, I'm coming to take the light. He said, if you do not repent and do the works you did at first, first heart, first spiritually, turning back to him, then action, right? Same order we always see. He said, then I will come and take the light. It's not too late. I commend you. Go. I'm reminding you. So Lord, show us and help us repent. Help us repent where we have drifted, if not abandoned, the love we had at first. Show us what that even means. We are blind often to even see it. Is it our love for you? Is it our love for one another? Is it love for the lost, this city, the brokenness? Have I rejected and abandoned? I'm tired of it. Or is it simply forgetting how deeply we are loved? by choosing to live according to the lies of this world or the enemy, that we're not enough, we're not worthy enough, we've done too much, we can't be used, you're not loved. We reject those lies, we rebuke the enemy, we receive the truth, we walk in repentance, we turn toward him. And let's pray as Paul prays. I know some of you pray regularly, some of you pray maybe this passage regularly if not daily, what does it take? One of the most powerful prayers ever prayed? thirty seconds. How incredible is that? And no, no don't I mean don't hear me wrong. I mean prayers of, of great length or whole nights given up in prayer are right and good, and probably move our hearts more than they ever move god's hearts God's heart, but he enjoys and interacts with us in those moments, and yet sometimes the most powerful prayers can be done in th- 30 seconds as we recenter what we are praying for. And I want you to notice and to see that Paul prays for nothing external. That they would be strengthened in their inner being. Strengthen us, Lord, in our inner being, in our soul, in our heart, that we would lay hold of your love. That's first from their external things. Do this, Lord. Heal, deliver, break down walls expand, grow, provide, be abundant all things he loves to do. And by the way, remember, remember the benediction to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask. Paul just raises it up, <laughs> couldn't say it any more emphatically. He can do it, he will do it more than you can imagine or think, more than you can even pray, pray about. One, be humbled about his majesty and his glory and his goodness, but two, be encouraged to pray big prayers. The prayers that you think are big are nothing to what God can do. I pray there are big prayers like, Lord, transform a nation, a community. Change us, Lord. Heal, Lord. Touch, Lord. Reach, Lord. But perhaps the biggest of all prayers is deliver me, Lord, from my bondage. Heal me that I would walk in victory, in hope, in freedom. May He do that for us today, individually, collectively, and then send us on His mission into the fields we've already been planted to or all whole new fields that He may be sending us. I have this thought. as pe- this This church throughout history has been at this crossroads in some ways of just a community, a changing community. Any church that lasts that long, it just happens. A community changes. But certainly in the recent decades, this place that used to be fairly rural, anyone remember that, is being gobbled up by a tech monster. It is changing. And I think of all the people that have come in and through this place for decades as God has moved them in various ways, I would love that testimony to be from those that say, you know what? That you're t- are, you t- are you telling me about Union Hill Church? I used to go to that church. They weren't that special. Man, God must love them so much to have done that in and through them. That's the testimony I want to hear. <laughs> Remember that pastor that was there like from 2009 to... yeah. God loves those people and loves those people. May it be, Lord, do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. As I pray this, I'll invite the team up. Receive this as your benediction to Him, to our God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all you have ever asked, all you have ever prayed, to take your meekest offering of faith to take your heart cry in your most desperate moment when it wasn't even an actual word. May he take those moments and every other moment and every other prayer and do far more abundantly in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your school than you could ever imagine. Do it, Lord. May it be not for us, but for your glory in your church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, every generation, forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. amen. Come to the table when you are ready. If you're new to, uh, new to our community, we celebrate communion every Sunday as a reminder. Do this in remembrance. We're prone to forget. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done on the cross, you need know nothing else except this Jesus. I want more of Him in my life. I want to follow Him. If that's your heart, you are welcome to the table. He will take you from this place and grow you. Come and receive what He has done. Be reminded. Be people of movement. Be people who are generous and give. Let's be people that respond, that don't hear and walk away unchanged, but hear and apply and are changed forever because of his power that is at work within us. Now, may we lay hold of it also through praise and worship. Sing, church. Sing aloud. I know we don't have campers on the other side of Mount Rainier, but maybe they could hear us today also. So lead us, team. Let's respond and worship.